Good evening, ladies. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Heather Hickey. Um, as you heard, Believers Fellowship Women's Board has been spending time breaking down the Titus 2, 3 through 5 passage. It reads, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So I have been asked to discuss with you what it is to be pure. Now, originally, I thought I could take the easy way and just talk about the broad definition of purity, which is defined by Lydia Brownback. Um, she says, at its core, purity is having a heart for the Lord that isn't watered down or polluted by lesser things. And from it springs moral behavior, the good we do with our bodies. And I thought, I can do that. I can talk to a group of women about having a heart for the Lord. That's far less uncomfortable and controversial than talking about the other kind of purity. Well, with deeper examination of the word pure in Titus 2.5, Bible commentators and dictionaries have shown me that the original Greek usage in the Titus 2 passage is specifically referring to purity in the sense of sexual morality. So here we go. All right. Before we dig in, though, to this topic, um, here are some statistics I want to share with you to help keep things relevant. Since we are at a Titus II women's event, most of these statistics will relate to women. 69% of individuals polled believed premarital sex was morally acceptable. 13% of married women commit adultery. 64% of women in dating relationships have viewed pornography. 49% of women in married relationships have viewed pornography. 96% of women polled ages ranging from 18 to 87 have admitted to having sexually immoral fantasies of some kind. 46% of girls ages 15 to 19 have lost their virginity. 22% of teenage girls participate in sexting. And here's where it hits even closer to home. 33% of Christians polled believe that sex between unmarried couples in a committed relationship is acceptable. I wish that I could stand before you and be able to share from experience the blessing from having walked in purity, but I cannot. You know that saying, been there, done that, bop t-shirt? Well, I am a been there, done that, grieved the sin, burned the t-shirt, used to be. And I praise God that I'm a used to be. But it's not without experiencing some of the heartache and brokenness and some long-term struggles 
um, that can result from consequences of impurity. So as I thought and prayed and remembered and reflected and prayed some more, I asked myself, if I had had a Titus II woman in my life way back then, what would I have wanted her to teach me? Why is purity being mentioned in Titus 2? Why is sexual purity so important? So, with the very limited amount of time that I have, I'm going to do my best to answer these questions for you. I'm going to share some thoughts on the importance of purity, some thoughts on how we can approach protecting our own purity, and hope for the ones who have fallen to this sin. So let's go back to the book of Titus 2. Why did the Apostle Paul write this letter to his disciple Titus? Titus had been left on the island of Crete to continue the ministry of growing the church in that region. Paul is giving great encouragement to Titus to equip the leaders and the believers. According to the John MacArthur commentary notes, it was so they could gain a hearing for the gospel among the people. The believer's primary preparation for evangelizing was to live among themselves with the unarguable testimony of righteous, loving, selfless, and godly lives in marked contrast to the debauched lives of the false teachers. And we see this mindset supported in Titus 2.5 when Paul says, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And also in Titus 2.10, when Paul finishes the section with the words, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, purity and moral excellence, which is our obedience to God's word, makes the gospel look attractive and pleasing. Ladies, how we live our lives is a testimony to God and to the world around us of what we believe. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he calculates in his soul, so he is. Romans six seventeen says, Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Romans 1, 21 through 28 uses the principle of sexual morality to show us that man submits his mind and his body to what is ruling his life. So these verses and others just like it are telling us that what we do, our actions of thinking and speaking and physically doing, is a direct result of what we really believe in our heart. When it comes to purity, there are two standards. There's what the world believes or what the world says and what God's word says. So let me ask you ladies, what do your actions say that you believe? The world standard or God's standard? The world today has run amok with sex, right? 
Sex is everywhere. It's in movies, it's in TV shows, music, books, it's on social media, in magazines. Practically everything has been sexualized from shampoo to cars, which doesn't make sense to me, but that's okay. So basically it's saying, if you want sexy hair, buy this shampoo. If you want a sexy car, drive this one. If you want someone to look at you like you're hot, dress this way. The agenda of the material industry seems to be lust. Not only that, but the world's mindset is there is nothing more important than the individual. And the highest value in life is pleasure. This leads to the standard of purity. Does it make you happy? Then do it, it must be good. The world believes that the physical person is more important than the spiritual person. So what does God have to say? I want to discuss some foundational principles of sexual morality and its context. First, the context of sexual purity in the Bible is only found in the context of marriage. Scripture makes clear that God intends for physical intimacy to take place exclusively between a man and a woman who have entered into the marriage covenant together. The creation account tells us, beginning in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Then in Genesis 2.24, and also in Ephesians 5, we are told, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Scripture makes it clear that God intends for physical intimacy to take place exclusively between a man and a woman who have entered into the marriage covenant together. In this context, it is good and right. Out of this context, it is not. It's that simple. Jim Neuheiser, in his book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, says, in today's culture, the wedding ring is the outward sign of the marriage covenant. According to scripture, however, excuse me, the sexual union between a husband and wife is the sacred sign and symbol of their covenant commitment. The coming together physically is meant to be a picture of oneness, of life and relational intimacy enjoyed by a man and a woman who have committed themselves to one another for life. Every other expression is against God's will and is a perversion of his wonderful design. So why marriage? There is a picture that we catch glimpses of throughout scripture, throughout scripture that often goes undiscussed or is just briefly mentioned. This picture is one that I believe can and should inform our approach to sexual purity, especially in the context of Titus 2, where our conduct is to be a testimony to the world around us about what we say we believe about God. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and his people. It's a picture of the gospel. 
Throughout scripture, God's covenant relationship with his people is portrayed as marriage. The Old Testament depicts Israel as the Lord's bride and the Lord as the bridegroom or the husband. We see this in Hosea 2, 19 and 20, when the Lord says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. In Isaiah 54, 4 through 6, the Lord says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And there are more verses in the Old Testament as well. But in the New Testament, Jesus is spoken of as the bridegroom and the church, his beloved bride, as Jesus himself says in Luke 5, 34. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 speak of the man and the woman joining together to become one. And then verse 32 says, this is a great mystery I speak concerning of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 30, show us that the responsibilities of a husband and wife reflect the roles of God and the church. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to um, their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Then it goes on to say, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The ongoing experience of God's love for us in Christ provides a model for us to emulate in our marriages. Are we showing the world around us that this is what we believe? Are you showing God that this is what you believe even in your private unspoken thoughts? God has given us the pleasure of mutual fellowship and mutual and the mutual blessing of help in marriage and he has also given the sexual union as a privilege exclusively to marriage to be enjoyed by both the husband and the wife deuteronomy 24 5 supports this when it says that a newly married man shall not go out with the army or in public duty but shall remain free for a year to be happy with his wife Proverbs 5, 18 to 19 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her fill you with delight. Be happy, be intoxicated with her love. In 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, God says that a wife's body does not belong to her, but to her husband. And likewise, the husband's body belongs to the wife. A while back, Aaron Ives, in one of his Sunday school lessons, said, sex is not the selfish act of self-gratification as the world commonly sees it, but it is a ministry of a husband-serving wife and wife-serving husband. It is the total giving of yourself to your spouse. 
he also shared what John MacArthur wrote. Paul makes it clear that physical intimacy within marriage is not simply a privilege and a pleasure, but it is a responsibility. God created the intimacy to be the expression and the experience of love on the deepest human level and to be beautiful and powerful beyond, oops, between, sorry, between husband and wife. Are you showing the world around you that this is what you believe? Are you showing God that this is what you believe, even with your private, unspoken thoughts? Are you walking in purity? So not only do we have these foundational principles, but we also have received explicit commands regarding purity. Deuteronomy 5.18 commands, you shall not commit adultery. Matthew 5.27 and 28 further explains adultery in this way. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 1 Corinthians 6.18 begins with telling us to flee from sexual immorality. Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in order among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 1 Thessalonians 4.3-5 says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. So I go back to my original question, ladies. Do your actions reflect you really believe what God says about sexual purity or that you believe what the world says about it. How we live our lives is a testimony of what we believe. What do your actions of thinking, speaking, and physically doing show you believe? Back to Titus 2, it says, train the young women to be pure, that the word of God may not be reviled. Is the word of God being honored by your actions in the realm of purity? So my greatest hope is that you're all saying yes in your minds. Yes, you do believe God's definition of and the design for sexual purity is right and good. Great. Now what? So as I begin to share some thoughts about um, what can be done to protect purity, first I must state that I know I'm speaking to a group of women tonight that consists of a wide range of ages and walks of life. There's no way I can possibly address every possible situation where temptations can arise. 
So with the very limited amount of time that we have left together, all I can really give is a tried and true practice and some broad one-size-fits-most recommendations. But I would like to say, if you feel you need more specific personal help in this area, please feel free to come and talk to me anytime. So, the battleground for our purity begins with our mind. Remember, Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he calculates in his soul, so he is. And Matthew 15, 19 and 20 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. These are what defile a person. We become what we think, what we believe. The only way to effectively and successfully fight the battle is to be prepared. We must have a plan in place before the battle begins. Psalm 119, 9 to 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So ladies, this is where the battle begins. This is where it's the battle for purity is won or lost. We need to be reading God's word. The Bible, through the help of the Holy Spirit, is how we know God. We are taught his character, and we learn of his desires for our lives. We cannot love God if we do not know God. But we need to do more than just read the word. We also need to meditate on it. Pastor Blakey, in a sermon quite a while ago, described what it meant, what it means to meditate on God's word. And it was actually a major aha moment for me. He said something like, to meditate on God's word is to do more than just read it and think about it. It means to meditate on God's word is to read it, pray about it, Think about how you are going to practically and personally apply its truth to your life and then do it. Joshua 1.8 says, You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Ladies, if we're going to be pure, we are going to read what God says in his word about purity, let its truth reorient our hearts, and then through prayer, live it out in our daily lives. So some other broadband thoughts that I have for what we can practically do to help protect our purity are one, Examine what you're taking in. Movies, books, um, social media, um, music, all of that. What you believe about purity and sexuality 
can be revealed by the kinds of movies and TV shows you watch or the music that you listen to. Also, these things can have an effect on your thoughts. Ask yourself, are you feeding discontentment? Are you feeding self-pleasure? Are you feeding lust? Or are you starving it? Are you feeding a passion for Christ? Or are you starving it? If you find that these things are having a negative impact on your purity, cut them out. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Another thing, if you experience intrusive or impure thoughts, have a plan ready to push them out. It is impossible to effectively push out impure thoughts without having God-honoring, God-exalting thoughts to put on in its place. Scripture, worship music, prayer, call an accountability partner. These are all options to have ready when those times come. I've heard it said that lust is mental promiscuity. I encourage you to honestly examine yourself and identify what tempts you towards lust. And then act to prevent or avoid it. Another thing, examine your heart in your clothing or adornment choices. What kind of attention are you seeking or desiring? Are you keeping sexy for your husband in private? Mamas, I encourage you to talk to your girls about God's design for sex. If we as Christians say that sex is a wonderful gift from God, but then treat it as a taboo topic, their curiosity is going to be satisfied from somewhere. Married ladies, keep nothing from your spouse. An example, my husband and I, we have some ground rules with each other. We never ride alone in a car with someone of the opposite sex. We copy each other on all non-work-related texts and emails. So you might want to think about whether you have a well-thought-out plan in these areas. So ladies, after hearing all that has been said and you recognize that maybe you have fallen to this sin of sexual immorality or that is an ongoing struggle in your life, either with lustful thoughts, immoral encounters, or impure speech, I encourage you to repent. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. But Proverbs 28.13 says, 
Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Do you remember when I said that I was a used to be? Well, here's how I know. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. King David gives testimony of the hope found in repentance. Psalm 51 is David's humble prayer of confession after he was convicted of his sin with Bathsheba. I encourage you to read it, pray it, but I'll share some of it with you. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And then he cries out, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. I have, have I sinned and done? Oh, my transgressions and my sin is before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then he prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And then he closes toward the end with, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let us close in prayer. Oh, gracious and merciful God, you are so good to give us your word so that we might know you and know your desires for our lives. Thank you for giving us these foundational principles for our purity. Father, I pray that as we read and meditate on your word, we will let your truths reorient our hearts. Whether young or older, married or single, I ask that you will help each woman here tonight to practically and personally apply your word to her life so that your word will not be dishonored and each life here can be a testimony to the beauty of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.